This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall hear about the importance of the upcoming midterm elections and some of the necessary dangers of infighting amongst the left. Clips today come from The David Pakman Show, Ring of Fire Radio, This Is Hell, The Real News Network, and Humorless Queers. These aren't the sexiest stories, but they're hugely important. Gerrymandering, redistricting, the upcoming 2020 census, voter ID and voter suppression. This stuff really matters for elections in the future. And so we have to talk about it. And I told you earlier this week that the Pennsylvania gerrymandering that was done by Republicans after the 2010 census is finally being cut off by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, upheld by the federal Supreme Court. Good news. But remember, that they did the gerrymandering in 2011 based on the 2010 census, and it helped Republicans control the congressional districts in Pennsylvania in the 2012 election, the 2014 election, and the 2016 election. It takes a long time to fix this stuff, so we should be doing everything we can to prevent it from happening in the first place. The next census is in 2020. I've told you about it a number of times. It will be used for redistricting in 2021. And it will be used as early as in the 2022 election. And this is huge because if Trump wins reelection in 2020, it will be even more important to prevent Republicans from using gerrymandering to clean up and pick up even more seats in the House in 2022. If Trump loses in 2020, we are not going to want Republicans to be able to use the gerrymandering of district maps to make gains in 2022 the way that very often the party out of the White House does in midterm elections. So this is a big deal. And the National Democratic Redistricting Committee met a couple of days ago, and they announced that they are targeting 12 states that they think could prevent the crazy redistricting that has taken place under Republican rule. Republicans actually have such control nationally over redistricting that this is not even an attempt from Democrats to take over control. They just want to eke out just enough influence that they can force Republicans to negotiate with them a little bit more fairly. So what Democrats want to do is go after nine gubernatorial races, 20 legislative chambers, two ballot initiatives and two down ballot races. And they also have eight other states on their watch list. And it's important to understand what's going on here, because I've said before that in 2018, all 435 House seats are up for reelection. And that's true. I'm not talking about that here. What I'm talking about here are statewide races where lots of gerrymandering activity actually happens. And that's where Republicans do really, really well. So we're talking about governorships, which are mostly controlled by Republican in the United States right now. I'm talking about state houses, which are mostly controlled by Republicans right now. And things are actually so bad in some states that the goal isn't even to take control of the state, either by winning the governorship or a majority in the state house. The goal in some of these places, because it's so upside down in favor of Republicans, is let's get Democrats just enough seats 
to be able to do a little bit of negotiating. And that's how bad it is that the bar is set so low for what would still be a huge improvement for Democrats at the state level. And given the option, like if we could choose, okay, a Democrat takes over the governor's seat or Democrats as a group take over a state legislature, the governorship is definitely simpler since that's one seat that can block gerrymandering in that particular state. But it's just not realistic in a lot of states. And we're linking on uh, the YouTube video description for the story to the article that lays this out. And I think it is important to think about this to understand where to donate your money, right? If you're not the Koch brothers or Sheldon Adelson or whoever, you have limited political contributions that you can make. So you want to consider as many factors as possible in thinking about where that money should go. Some of us might just on a whim say, well, I'll just donate exactly where I am. I'll donate to the Senate race in my state. If it's up in 2018, I'll donate to whoever I want to be my representative in the U.S. House of Representatives, and I'll vote down ballot, for example, uh, in when it's election day. Consider that you might have a bigger impact if you were able to help by donating. Maybe instead, if if your district is safe, maybe you decide to donate to a Democrat running a race for governor in some other state, for example, right? I'm, I'm not saying you definitely want to do that, but you n- need to understand where will your limited number of dollars that you contribute to politics have the biggest impact and gerrymandering and the census and redistricting impact and influence politics in so many ways that we've got to be cognizant of what the impact is going to be big picture beyond just I'll donate to my local city council and state Senate seat, because this is a really, really big thing. And it could shape. We saw what happened with the 2010 census, three elections before courts decided that was not good. And this was unconstitutional with redistricting. Let's prevent it from going wrong in the first place. Last year, the state of Virginia pulled off a massive upset at the polls, resulting in the shift of balance in the House of Delegates from 66 to 34 in favor of Republicans to 51-49 in favor of Republicans. This enormous shift resulted in Medicaid expansion that will help almost 400,000 Virginians who would have been uninsured. Here to explain why Democrats across the country should get involved in state races all over the U.S., National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation magazine, CNN political contributor, Joan Walsh. So, Joan, the 7,383-seat strategy is also is obviously a, a somewhat tongue-in-cheek nod to the old 50-state um, Howard Dean strategy, uh, but it... Uh, it's tongue in cheek, but in a way, it's not. It's not quite tongue in cheek, is it? No, it's not, uh, Sam. You know, it's really looking at how Democrats, on some level, gave up contesting a lot of state legislative seats. I mean, it, it refers to the number of state legislative seats in bodies uh, across the country, uh, and it really looks at the way Democrats gave up uh, starting in 2009 for a lot of complicated reasons. Uh, Republicans dug in and, uh, they wound up flipping these states from being, uh, being bodies that were dominated by Democrats. Uh, you know, even Ronald Reagan took the White House, George W. Bush took the White House, 
but the state legislature is state democratic. And, uh, you know, in 2008, 2009, folks, Republican folks figured out that there was a lot of power at that level and that they could use it for redistricting. They could use it to uh, pass really regressive laws on abortion and taxes and uh, voter suppression and everything else. Uh, at the same time as uh, Barack Obama took the White House and Democrats felt like, okay, the power uh, is in Washington. So it's, a, it's, been a, it's been a tough 10 years but in the last two or three years, a lot of uh, grassroots people and even some more more uh, elite folks uh, have realized Democrats have to get back into the game. All right, let's. I mean, let's talk briefly about why. Why? I mean, what happened? I mean, what? I mean, I, I think, and you know, we can. Uh, we'll, we'll touch on the gerrymandering follow, following the 2010 election, and in fact, this week uh, there was a report put out by the Brennan Center to that um, really brings it to stark relief the um the gerrymander gap for lack of a better term that uh, democrats need to overcome we'll touch on that in a second but but what was the what, what were the circumstances obviously there's a lot of different things but what what was the broad i guess sensibility that allowed for these and i think uh, over the obama administration there was some, you know people cite a thousand seats lost what what, what led to that I think in large measure, uh, it was people, uh, all the, so much energy going into, uh, certainly the Obama race and, and into, you know, Senate campaigns, taking back the House, good things basically, uh, but disinvesting at the state level, kind of taking it for granted. And, you know, mediocre Democrats who hadn't had a challenger, uh, for 10 years suddenly had, had challengers. And, uh, you know, everyone from the Cokes to Art Pope in North Carolina, they were putting millions and millions of dollars into these into these state legislative races, which honestly, especially back then, but even to some extent now, uh, you know, a, a twenty thousand, a fifty thousand dollar investment uh, could could flip a seat. Uh, they're 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 not uh, they're not nearly as expensive as say a congressional district, and so. Uh, Republicans got got smart about it, and and Democrats got dumb. I mean, it's not really, you know, we 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 can. You, you alluded to the fifty fifty state strategy, and we know that you know Howard King kind of got rewarded for his efforts uh, by losing his job at the DNC, and uh, you know, but it's it's not really the, a job of the DNC. It's kind of, it's kind of a it's a weird. It's a weird nether region. You know, there was a, there is the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee that lost some powerful staff. Um, it just wasn't where it wasn't where the action was. And suddenly it, for, for Republicans, it absolutely was. And so uh, those uh, those millions of dollars that came pouring in from the Koch brothers and others, like you say, uh, turned the balance of these state houses. And then in 2010, the uh, Republicans, and uh, we certainly have talked about it on this program, uh, David Daly has a uh, book about uh, this process, um, and the Brennan Center, like I said, came out with a report this week on gerrymandering, which suggests that Democrats need to, and different people have different numbers, Nate Smith has others, but uh, clearly the Democrats need to win by somewhere between 7 and 12 uh, percentage points just to get to a 50-50 type of situation. I mean, this is this is bizarre and sometimes hard for people to wrap their heads around, but the Democrats can go out and win 65% of the vote 
and still lose the majority of seats across these state houses because of the way that um, the, the the Republicans gerrymandered. So here is here is a sort of a, a, a broader question. Republicans clearly came in in 2010 and they had this agenda, right? Like we're going to we're going to take over these state houses. We're going to uh, redistrict in 2010, which they did. Uh, it's being reversed. It was so bad in Pennsylvania. It's being reversed by it was reversed by the state Supreme Court. But we see it perhaps uh, it, it, uh, the Supreme Court in the United States may in fact reverse some of these. Uh, but we're also going to pass all sorts of legislation, whether it's right to work, which ends up dropping Democratic vote tattle, t- tallies by two to three percent, or other mechanism to enhance our power. Right before we get to target like, the public target public employee unions they are you know they remain a huge source of democratic money as well as uh, foot soldiers uh, on campaigns really incredibly smart devastating brutal move and and national democrats did so little to fight back uh you know most not- notably in, in wisconsin but elsewhere as well right and we're on the verge of seeing that on a national level with this janice case but what let me ask right. you this and maybe i'm getting ahead of myself but do you think Democrats understand this part of it? Because clearly there's a phenomenon. I want to get to this phenomenon of what's going on on these state races in terms of involvement, both institutional and grassroots on these races. But do you also think in, in the course of your reporting, did you get a sense that there is an awareness that if if the Democrats take power, they need to have on their agenda a an issue like a set of policies that will enhance their ability to get reelected, like expanding voting rights, like expanding the rights to uh, unionize. I mean, I'm not saying they should do anything nefarious, but do you think there's that awareness this time around? I don't, uh, you know, I think it's increasing, but I don't know if it's where you and I would would want it to be. I mean, I do, you know, Eric Holder has this this fancy group uh, that's getting a lot of press, but it is important because it shows that smart Democrats with a lot of money kind of get this that the you know they're they're focusing uh certainly on state legislative races but they also have a uh you know court strategy um they're suing in fact you know to block this this new census rule question asking about citizenship that's it's not exactly what we're talking about but they're looking at the various ways uh republicans are trying to basically choose their voters rather than voters choosing their representatives so you know i, I think an increasing number of of people at that level get it. But I also think, you know, honestly, they were led to some extent by the grassroots and the incredible progress that happened in Virginia last year, which was, you know, women largely coming back from women's marches and, and you know, whether they had worked for Bernie or Hillary, I, I, I saw in Virginia an incredible overlap. You know, you and I are are veterans of that, you know, not very fun 2016 primary race. But on the ground in Virginia, you saw these women who'd worked for both campaigns, in fact, uh, come out of that awful election and decide they were going to run for something. And it wasn't going to be, you know, dog catcher or school board that they would look at the, they would look at the House of Delegates. Uh, and so you wound up more than doubling the number of Democrats who challenged Republicans. I mean, the thing that's happening is that Democrats aren't even challenging Republicans at the state assembly and state Senate level in in the red and purple states. These guys and their guys uh, are are going unopposed. But I I do feel like the grassroots led the way in showing um, what a difference uh, 
good candidates, diverse candidates, and really angry, you know, motivated people, especially women and people of color, could make at the state legislative level. They wound up taking, uh, they took 15 seats. They almost took control of the legislature. Uh, it came down to literally picking a name, a tie where they picked the name out of a, uh, a ceramic bowl. And so I really do think this is a case of the grassroots kind of reminding well, elites what's take- possible. In terms of fighting climate change, one of the most effective pieces of low-hanging fruit to start our shift to a renewable energy future is to sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than that of old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly indefinitely. To sign up, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best. If they don't service your area now... They have plans to come your way soon, so don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you may think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice. So, Edward, you, you told us in an email about what you've seen in the U.S. left since you returned from Switzerland a year ago. You write that instead of fighting state and capital, instead of building solidarity infrastructure that could save us or at least make our decline less unpleasant, instead of reaching broader constituencies hungry for our message and ready to fight alongside us, we fight each other in ways that make us resemble our worst enemies and over topics that are at once trivial to us anyway, for now anyway, and deadly critical like Russia and Syria to name but two. So how do you see the left in the U.S. today resembling its worst enemies in the U.S.? How does the left look to you like the worst of the far right? There was an article that I translated um, from Klasse gegen Klasse, sort of like a the German affiliate of Left Voice. Some listeners might be familiar with it, like a Trotskyist online magazine. Um, and uh, Like around, I don't remember when it was, but it was this summer when sort of the whole Antifa thing was starting to get steam in North America. I translated this article that they had published uh, about the origins of Antifa, right? Um, And describing sort of like the left milieu uh, against fascism in 1930s Germany, right? And one of the reasons I wanted to translate it and present it to our readers um, was there was something in that article that kind of like, surprised me um uh as far as like one of the one of the main problems of the two main uh left parties in 1930s germany and one of the things that prevented them from actually like forming a united fight the front that could have honestly defeated um nazism uh (laughs) like suffocated in the cribs before it uh before they gained power um one of the reasons was that like both the uh the socialists the SPD and the communists, the KPD, uh, essentially, like, were accusing each other of being fascist, right? And they wouldn't work with each other. And uh, I, I thought that sounded ridiculous, but now I'm I'm seeing a lot of the same sort of stuff today. Um, and so, 
I don't know. Maybe I'll, I'll describe some of uh, the reasons for the SPD and the KPD for like behaving this way, and maybe people will sort of uh, see parallels for themselves. But so, like, the SPD was uh, regarded by the communists as like essentially a, a bourgeois liberal party, right? The social democrats. Um, they're in government. They were, for example, um, perfectly comfortable relying on. Um, like the, the the police to uh, attack and 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 enforce <laughs> laws against uh, you know the, the 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 rising Nazi threat when it came to street violence and things like that, um, and uh, they were also regarded by the communists as like like I say a, a bourgeois party that was participating in capitalism, and capitalism was uh, part of what was producing. Um, fascism, because you know, at that time as now, capitalism was in deep crisis, of course, and you know we don't need to get into all of like the uh, the, the economic um, like uh, wellsprings of of, of 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 fascist tendencies. Um, but so you know, communists could look at the SPD and be like, "You're you're part of the problem, right?" And in that regard, you're you're all you might as well be fascist. Um, and in the other direction, obviously, uh, this was at the time of Stalinist Soviet Union, um, the SPD looked at the German communists and were like, how, how could you call us the fascists when you are obviously the fascists, right? Look at uh, the um, sort of the pole of influence that you're orienting yourself towards. Um, and that's not what we want either, this kind of authoritarian communism, right? Um, and like the problem was, of course, that like the KPD had the like the more militant uh, street um, formations that were actually fighting the Sturmabteilung, right? The like the Nazi thugs in the street, um, but you know couldn't handle the 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 the, the fascist threat themselves. They needed the uh, social democrats who had. Uh, basically, control over like the entire labor movement in in Germany to to like to mobilize their popular forces as well as support. Otherwise, they didn't stand a chance. And like electorally speaking, and this is I guess a, a contrast to today's um, United States, at least, <laughs> is that uh, you know the SPD and the KPD had they actually been united, um, they had like far and away more um, electoral support combined than uh, the Nazi party. And so, you know, could have forestalled like the, you know, the democratic election of, of Hitler. Yeah, and in the article that you're citing, uh, the author says, both parties were wrong, a real united front against fascism was needed. A united front would mean march separately, strike together. In other words, everyone can stick to and promote their own program, but when it comes to action, you work in concert. What does march separately and strike together mean when it comes to the U.S. left and how they're currently not doing that? How can a communist strike together with someone who is a liberal Democrat? Yeah, well, I think it, 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 it comes down to um, identifying a, con a common enemy, right, and agreeing that uh, that's the attack surface that we're going to be focusing on, right? I mean, like I'm, like you mentioned in the intro, I uh, 
a big part of the problem is that um, it seems like instead of fighting state and capital and fascism, frankly, um, in all of its manifestations in U.S. society right now, uh, leftists prefer to uh, fight other leftists instead of state capital and, and fascism um, because they know leftists, other leftists won't hurt them. Right, it's it's a form of cowardice <laughs> in a way, right? And and especially with social media these days, um, it seems like there are a lot of leftists that would really, really prefer um, to go on Twitter and drag other leftists for whatever the hell reason, um, in order to. I, I mean, it's it all seems very like venal and selfish and egotistical, frankly, because they're not really doing anything by behaving this way besides like building their own brand. Uh, <laughs> but like they prefer to do that than actual, than, than, than do real organizing with, uh, um, you know, like you read from my email, um, <laughs> than like actually reaching out to constituencies that would be eager for their message. You also had an article at Antidote Zine last month, which you translated by Hubert Malhofer and Dieter Augenbach, headlined, The War is Also in Our Heads. You write, or they write, uh, we operate on the assumption that hegemonic discourse and its radiating material effects are central pillars securing the current structure's continued domination. The state tries to impose its interpretation of things, its way of knowing, and often succeeds as a result of certain infrastructure at its disposal. This is how those who call themselves revolutionaries become masked delinquents and terrorists. That is a familiar example, but the narratives contained within respective discourses also function on much more complex levels in that they are not only perceived by but indeed shape individuals the forces at work when welfare recipients for example are compelled to optimize themselves their problems are individualized and though they are exasperated with the lie of the american dream they might denounce other unemployed people at the job as lazy how important is not allowing this hegemonic discourse uh, to guide our discussion, how important is that to bringing about real, transformational, transformative change? How much do we simply have to think differently outside of that hegemonic discourse box and challenge assumptions that the majority of society embraces today? Oh, I think it's fundamental. Um, and it has to do with how critical it is. I mean, it's it, it, it's really critical that we do this, right? I mean, I'm, I, I'll refer back to another interview that you guys did last year with uh, Timothy Snyder. I'm not sure that if if he said this uh, in the interview uh, or if he referred to it or if it's from his book. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but just um, two things, like first of all, like just pointing out uh, that <laughs> we have a year <laughs> uh, to like forestall. Uh, the, the, you know, the full, uh, constitution of tyranny in this country. And well, it's been about a year, so I'm not feeling super good about uh, having <laughs> that goal at this point. Um, but the other thing, uh, that he mentioned, uh, as ways to, um, at least inoculate yourself, um, and your community against, uh, tyranny is basically to get offline, right? Um, read books, get your information from, from books and from people, right? Go out in the community and, and, and actually meet people. That's what, and, and it's, 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 
it's another thing that's really well re- reflected in uh, the article you just quoted from, where they sort of talk about how, yes, there is a certain degree to which, like, leftist militancy, um, you know, to be the biggest badass in the world, like, you need to be taking risks and stuff. Uh, how many demos have you been to? How many times have you gotten tear gas? Um, that kind of thing. Uh, but it's just as risky and is just as worthy of uh, praise um, and it takes just as much courage to get out of this little insular left bubble that we're all in, to face outward, and to engage with people who don't agree with you or who might agree with you but are coming from such a different context that it requires like a certain amount of building and um, conversation in order to like find some common ground. I mean, and that's, that's what we call organizing. <laughs> Right. And um, and that's the kind of thing that, like, um, you know, say what you will about clicktivism and, you know, Twitter activism and that kind of thing. Um, that kind of organizing just can't happen online. It has to happen in real life. It has to happen outside and face to face. And I think that, like, the extent to which the left at this point, to the <laughs> to whatever extent it's retrievable at all, considering how the clock is running out, both in terms of fascism and in terms of climate chaos. Um, uh, I think if we're going to, if, if we're going to get there, if we're going to make any progress at all, it has to um, come from us just stopping being so self-referential, stop being so like just turned inward toward the left and uh, doing this whole um, classic um, circular firing squad stuff and phase outward, right? and um, start thinking about how we can um, connect with and mobilize, uh, like I keep saying, like this constituency that really, like a base that really is is, is ready and has been ready um, and has even, like, in the last year or so, I've observed myself, has been approaching radical, radical leftist organizations. And, like, there are plenty of people that are disillusioned with the Democratic Party. There are pr- plenty of liberals that have started to lean further left and investigate what they can do in this milieu. And a lot of them have either left in frustration or they've been, uh, frankly, uh, like, booted, you know, just excluded from these spaces um, on all kinds of what I think are, like, again, like, really sort of, like, petty and and selfish grounds that, that have to do more with sort of like people protecting their fiefdoms and the purity of their spaces and their ideology than it has to do with, like we talked about before, actually like selecting a common enemy and going after them together. Across the country, progressive activists are waging a fight on two fronts against Trump and the far right and the policies of this administration, but also inside the Democratic Party against what Bernie Sanders calls the oligarchs, the section that at least that controls the Democratic Party. Some people call them corporate Democrats. How do they balance this fight? 
Some people say that fighting against Democrats of any shape or size or color at this point in the campaign weakens the fight against Trump. On the other hand, some of the leading activists say the fight does need to be waged. Other, in fact, they suggest that if the fight against corporate Democrats isn't successful, the fight against Trump won't be successful. Here's Nina Turner at a recent event at The Real News Network. And sisters and brothers, again, this is not just, see, folks want us to fixate so much, overly so, on the man in the White House. And he makes it hard for us not to pay attention to what he's doing. I'm not saying ignore what he's doing. I'm not saying that we shouldn't bump up against and resist and fight what he's doing. But what are we going to do once we're done resisting? What are we going to replace him with in 2020? Because I say that any old blue just won't do. Any old blue just won't do. That's one of the slogans people are adopting. But as I said before, there are people suggesting any old blue is better than Trump. So don't split the resistance, as it's called. Now joining us to talk about all of this are three people who are involved in this fight on both fronts. First of all, from Wallingford, Connecticut, Alexandra Rojas is the campaign's director for the Justice Democrats, a progressive political action committee founded in January of 2017. Joining us from New York is Momita Ahmed. Momita is a grassroots organizer with People for Bernie Sanders and co-founder of the group Millennials for Revolution, previously known as Millennials for Bernie Sanders. And joining us from Washington, D.C. is Eugene Purrier. Eugene is a journalist, author, and activist. He's co-founder of Stop Police Terror Project, D.C., and a member of D.C.'s Movement for Black Lives Steering Committee. Thank you all for joining us. Um, Alexandra, why don't you kick us off? Um, How do you balance this issue of fighting against corporate Democrats? It's a major fight in the party uh, as we head towards 2020. First, obviously, 2018 with the primaries. But assuming Bernie Sanders runs again in 2020, uh, there, this could be a major split in the party. Uh, there was one last time, but it could be even more this time. H- how do you deal with this, as I call it, the fight on both fronts? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think there's enough evidence out there and just anyone you know, like the folks on this call uh, who have worked with grassroots leaders before knows that the way to win is going to be fighting for Uh, a more progressive vision. Uh, We've seen what happens, I think, in the past with things like Obamacare, where it doesn't matter if you have a Democratic majority, if Democrats aren't united on a vision of what universal health care looks like. Um, So we actually, at Justice Democrats, just commissioned a report. It's called The Future of the the Party. You can go to futureofthepartycom And a lot of the data right now shows that there is this base out there that is totally untapped into this marginal, uh, these marginal voters that uh, are more progressive, that vote more consistently, uh, that can achieve these electoral victories and, and really mobilize people. So there's plenty of evidence out there, I think, that shows that uh, fighting for a more progressive vision and being united on those policies like Medicare for all, a living wage, ending mass incarceration are vastly popular with the American people. And so all we're asking for, I think, is is to you know give what the base wants. And I think that's how we're going to achieve electoral victory. So primaries uh, and justice Democrats mind is the best way to do that. It's how we push policies forward. It's like, you know, what we saw, like you said, during 2016, even though there's tension, this is good. Right. We need to be having this 
this national conversation to continue to push forward, especially in times like Trump, where we don't have time to wait uh, to, to just elect any old Democrat. We have to elect people that are actually going to fight for working people. Uh, Momita, uh, this fight is not just a difference of policy in terms of these sections of the Democratic Party. Some people call it the Sanders wing. Uh, some people call it the Sanders wing versus the corporate Democrat wing. Um, but it's often talked about as just disagreement about policy. In fact, Hillary Clinton said there's the only real difference between Sanders and me, she said, is how to get to the same objectives. But this difference is, is, is quite more profound than just the same objectives. This essentially is a section of the party that's based on Wall Street and sections of Silicon Valley and other sections of the oligarchy who really have their hooks and can have for deck for probably actually really forever, more or less, controlled the Democratic Party. Perhaps Roosevelt pushed back on that to some extent. Um, that kind of fight is a, a fight against enormous sections of capital. Um, but it, does, it, it gets framed as if it's just a policy difference, that somehow the Democratic Party can be won over to this more progressive vision. What, what do you make of that? Uh, you're absolutely correct. It's not just the uh, policies that divide the, you know, Sanders wing or the Hillary Clinton wing. The Sanders uh, campaign was just the outcome after years and years of working class people, uh, women of color, people of color, um, the LGBT community just absolutely tired of the policies of the 1% and their influence in our politics. Um, at this point, our elected officials um, do not care about uh, work, helping working class people or um, policies to help working class people or address this income inequality. Um, income inequality is a choice made by our um the elected officials that we have right now who take money from Wall Street, from the NRA, from uh, the all these lobby uh, special interest groups. And so it, it's not just mere policy differences. It's literally a structural difference. The way the Democratic Party is structured currently, the consultant class, the big donors, the, you know, the Wall Street funders, are the are uh, are literally buying um, uh, offices or positions um, that influence legislation, and so when you have so that's a structural issue. That's not a sort of merely a policy issue. And I think uh, more and people more and more people are waking up to that fact and are realizing um, that. This is this is a structural issue that we all need to go after. And 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 in order to um, fix this structural issue, as Alex said, as, as you were saying, we need to run people progressives in the primaries who are not going to take uh, money from super PACs uh, and they're going to challenge the establishment candidates who are being bought, who are being um uh, you know, who are uh, right. being influenced by consultants. Yeah. Uh, Eugene, I, I talked once to a political consultant for one of the big unions. And, and he said that that the progressive forces, which he, you know, speaking on behalf of the unions, 
they understand that the right, and this is even pre-Trump, so what he would say is even more the case from his point of view, uh, that, that you need sections of Wall Street. You need sections of what they would call the liberal oligarchy, if they want to use the oligarchy word. Um, you need them to fight the far right. And, and that they're, they're simply, it's, he would say, being naive to think that when it comes down to real national presidential elections, um, you can beat these guys without the kind of financial resources Wall Street brings to bear in these campaigns. And so if you want to stop, you know, I don't know if he would have used this word, but a real fascist or a further fascization of America, you got to play this game where, where you allow room for Wall Street and, and, and that section of the oligarchy in the Democratic Party. How do you answer that? Well, I would just answer that by looking at the facts. I mean, I think that it's demonstrably true, and the labor movement has had this policy consistently of the lesser of two evils. Uh, really? Really going back to the second half of the first Carter administration, politics in the United States has marched inexorably to the right, regardless of the mix of the two major political parties in both houses of Congress and in the White House and at the State House. And I think that when you look at that, it shows that the lesser of two evil politics, which is consistently given ground on the important and I think, uh, the, as my co-panelists have spoke to, the extremely important differences and, and given up in some ways trying to win them in favor of some form of triangulation has been completely unable even when Democrats have gained the majority of arresting this steady march to the to the right in terms of where the political center uh, uh, sits. And I think that a lot of it is based on a policy of uh, a, a really a fear. I, I think that electoral change and, and votings and, and things like that come after major cultural shifts, major progressive moments in terms of Congress and the like really come because there are mass, independent, uncompromising social movements that are fighting these fights on their real true basis on the ground and winning people over uh, both intellectually and in terms of their own interests. And I think that that's why this issue of, of the fight within the Democratic Party, I, I would not look at the two things as, as antipodes at all. I think that ultimately the only way to start to push back against the right and for progressive people move the political center of the country back to the left towards pro-people policies can only happen if we're willing to build up a majority of people who, you know, A, I think already agree with what a lot of we say, we're saying, but are politically demoralized and demobilized because the political lesser of two evils politics has delivered so little. But I think also to try to win over some people who are in the right wing camp whose interests, I think, are not being served. I don't think that's going to happen uh, via these same type of triangulation politics that have not proven successful. As you know, this show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you. More specifically, members like Jarrett F., Mark M., and Matt W., who have all been going above and beyond to help support the show and keep it going. But it's not charity on their part, of course. Remember, members get access to a members-only podcast feed that includes ad-free versions of every episode, plus two episodes of members-only in-depth discussions each month. A quick refresher that uh, this is the compromise I came up with in the middle of last year after I realized I was working way too damn much. Turns out I was way overextending myself, putting out eight new episodes each month, so I dropped that down to six and supplemented the members with additional bonus content 
content. And it, the bonus content has a different vibe from the regular show, but it ends up being more intimate and often sparks really interesting conversations among members. So to get all of our previous and future bonus episodes, just find us on Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash best of left membership starts at six dollars but we will gratefully accept more if you really want to support the show we really appreciate anything you can give so please think about signing up again find us at patreon.com slash best of left or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com to get started thanks as always for your support And you're right that the big question lurking mostly undiscussed in left circles is whether movements should be run top-down or bottom-up. This muddle means that, with a few notable exceptions, the left is terrible at meetings and it is terrible at organization. Nobody wants to take charge. Nobody wants to take the lead and tell people what to do. The misplaced faith in consensus and grassroots digital spontaneous action means that nothing ever gets done. Initiatives uh, fizzle out and uh, energy drains into the ground. We need to accept that campaign leaders will take charge and that this is necessary. If the left has misplaced faith in consensus and grassroots digital spontaneous action, then where do you think that faith should be placed? Isn't Putting faith in a top-down approach, putting faith in those who are most connected to maybe the big money that is causing many of uh, mm. us to lose faith in politics. Yeah. I mean, it's my, my belief in authority is very <laughs> unfashionable, um, especially on the left. But what I feel is that there are these economic elites. You know, there's always anti-elitism around at the moment that the, the liberal elite, the metropolitan elite, these are all um, insults. But actually, I think what that obscures is the very real elites, which who are economic and corporate financial elites. And those are still, uh, well, they're getting even more powerful than, than ever before. Um, and yet what we've, I think, done, I think, well, what the, the, the populist right has done is to take um, what should be our anger directed at these very real powers. And it's directed it at those in authority. So... We ha we see this very much in um, you know and sort of um, opposition to doctors you know experts climate scientists um, uh, and and also politicians that these these experts these people who are uh, leaders um, we we just hate that but actually it's kind of odd because we're quite happy with um, revering business gurus and and CEOs <laughs> um, and they you know they're the ones that we use authority and power we should be challenging. One last question for you, Elian. We've been speaking with writer, lecturer, BBC radio broadcaster and producer Elian Glazer, author of Anti-Politics on the Demonization of Ideology, Authority and the State. You can find out more about Elian at her website, elianglazer.org, and you can follow her on Twitter at Elian Glazer. You write I'm sorry. Our last question that we do for each and every one of our guests, we call it the question yeah. from hell. It's the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. And I think that might be the category this falls in. You write, what we must not do is to coyly shrink from coming up with a program and simply listening to ordinary people. If we go down this route and don't take the initiative, we'll wait around self-defeated for decades. Listening is posited time and time again as the solution to our broken politics, but it's actually part of the problem. But we're told here in the States that Trump was listening to the working class, to the ordinary people, and Hillary wasn't. So doesn't listening to mm. ordinary people 
help in understanding what people want? Why shouldn't we listen to ordinary people? Well, I mean, I think the Democrats have lost touch with ordinary people, and I think that's the problem that the Democratic Party has to fix. Um, and it's about the same with the Labour Party in this country. Um, but I think that 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 we need to listen, or you need to listen, is is right wing populist code for um, for saying um, ordinary people are actually right wing, and you and so you need to be more right wing. But actually, I think when you really do <laughs> talk to in quotes, ordinary people, you find that they they are often left wing actually, and um, uh, but that's not what we're told in the media. The assumption is that if you're ordinary people, then you are naturally conservative, and I think that's that's a myth. So I think the Labour, I think the left needs to take the initiative to to be authoritative, to organise and be strategic and be stand up and be proper leaders, and say this is what we believe in. These are our values, and if you like them, well, vote for us. say alexis that when you were just talking I, was, I had this thought that wow on this show you know what we used to do well, we, used we used to, to talk, talk about, about the democrats like, <laughs> well we used to talk about how the democrats sucked because they weren't like fucking the banks enough you know what yeah. i mean like they like dodd frank we criticized dodd frank because it wasn't harsh we enough needed more of, yeah yeah exactly and now we're just like grasping or grasping at these like <laughs> pathetic fucking it's like well like maybe if we can distract them with the net neutrality thing even though we know we're gonna lose we can keep them from doing this other really really hard i don't know thing. man like, this is the reality we find ourselves I know. in I know. but it's yes terrible. it's true. which brings me to something that i do want to mention tonight which is that Apparently, Trump is doing really well. Like, his popularity numbers are pretty high right now. It's disgusting. Yeah, high 40s. I mean, white people Uh, in this country, we we need to fix our face. This is not okay. Seriously, but white white people, what the fuck? And I'm worried about November. I mean, you know, I feel like people have kind of become complacent that because this is so insane that people couldn't possibly vote for him. But there is a real information gap in this society. True. Right? Like, some people are getting their information from one corner of this world, and some people are getting it from the other. And, I mean, if you watch Fox News for five minutes, you can... I mean, you can't really do it because it's too hard to watch. You can't watch it for five minutes. But, like, tons of people just watch that, you know, and they listen to right-wing talk radio, which can be even worse mm-hmm. than Fox News. And mm-hmm. there are millions and millions of people like that. And, and unfortunately, it seems like a lot of people in the middle are not as appalled by what Trump is doing and has done as people on the liberal left want everyone else to be. So, I don't know. I would just say that if you're concerned about the issues that we talk about on this show. And I'm going to take a pledge also to get more involved in the midterms and try to actually make some phone banking calls to folks in other states where there are close races that we need to flip. Um, and we should talk, Alexis, on a future program about some of those specific races because yep. despite however much I really do not want to elect Democrats who are full of shit, 
you know, I mean, even Doug Jones, who's very conservative, he's not nearly as bad as the fucking guy who's like a child rapist that, you know, against <laughs> him. And, and like, it's just, I mean, we have to be really, I think, honest with ourselves about the real political choices that we face, which doesn't mean that we don't like fight all the struggles that we're fighting and use the language and the rhetoric and the messaging that we want to use to fight them. But I don't know. I mean, this whole Trump experience has really changed my view on the lesser of two evil situation because the really, really evil one is like exhausting. Yeah. It's, you know? it's, I mean, there's we, no space we for, fight for scraps. That's every day. Yeah. And it's not even scraps. We fight to like not have the horrible, bad thing be universally praised by the press or something. Right. It's just like, Oh, let's get some bad stories about the bad thing that happened. And yeah, it's yeah, really, really has been a normalization. I mean, the fact that, you know, Sean McElwee tweets about this type of stuff a lot that there was a, an undocumented or rather a journalist, an immigrant journalist who was arrested by ICE and targeted because of his reporting. There have been numerous people all across the country who have been targeted by ICE who are activists, immigration rights, immigrants rights activists who ICE has clearly targeted in a very political way. Um, all of that other crazy stuff that we mentioned before is happening with immigration. Obviously, the Muslim ban is still something that the administration is committed to with this ex- quote unquote extreme vetting that will subject even green card holders to constant social media monitoring um, to see if they're like productive members of society and to see if they're like national security risks which, and shit, if which you, probably just means saying fuck Trump on Twitter. If you missed like, it, we talked about this in episode 47. So feel free to listen to that next if you missed it the first time. Yeah. Anyway, I don't want, I don't need to like list all the tyrannies, but it's just a lot. It's a lot of tyrannies. No, and, it's really and, like, bad. And I think yeah. like people really need like, look, what did I, what did I do before the 2016 election? Basically nothing except on the day of the election. I did some get out the vote, like canvassing. Do I wish I had done more? Fuck yeah. I wish I had done more. Do I wish I had gone to Michigan? Yeah. I wish I had gone to Michigan. So like this time around, like let's all take a pledge that we're going to do more and like hold our noses for the candidates that aren't great. And then obviously support the candidates that are great. And there are a lot of really cool, exciting dynamic candidates that are getting shit done. Like the new DA in Philadelphia, for example, like there are actual really cool, great, exciting people that we just genuinely want to support, but also like, let's do some, let's do some supporting of people in like tight districts. And like, that doesn't just mean showing up on election day. Like that means like, what's the local organization that actually does the work in that community all the time and maybe kick them some money so that the organizing can happen all of the time. Um, right. And I think like, you know, understandably there's this sense among leftists that supporting certain people like Doug, Doug Jones is unconscionable because he's horrible. Right. And I think that's maybe a minority opinion just because of how bad his opponent was, but just say for argument's sake that you have a real problem with Doug Jones's politics, which I do. And I do too. He is actually really bad on banking issues. So I actually, yeah, he's terrible. He's basically like a conservative Democrat or, you know, liberal Republican. He's bad. But if leftists, and liberals mobilize enough political power to elect someone like that, it's very conceivable that that political power can be translated into moving that candidate to the left on certain issues and or even better, replacing them later with someone who's even further to the left, right? I mean, I don't know. I just don't see necessarily that 
buying into the lesser of two evils dynamic in terms of like voting situations is really all that disastrous simply because at least it preserves the status quo. And I, you know, I'm not a fan of the status quo, but like this past year and a half has really shown me that the status quo was a much more fertile environment for the types of movements that we really need to build Mm -hmm. in order to make the kind of changes that we want in our government. And that this situation that we're in right now is a crisis and it's not a fertile environment. I mean, I think you know, maybe some people listening will say like, oh, well, didn't the ACLU get millions of dollars? Yes, there is this initial reaction where people want to get more involved and they, you know, recommit themselves to the democratic process and being involved civically and politically. But that fades. And I think it already has to a certain degree. Um, you know, so, and then something like Trump becomes normal and the normalization of this chaos I think is really dangerous. I mean, you know, the number of things that we discuss on this show that we wouldn't be talking about if Hillary Clinton were president is a lot. It's a lot of things. I mean, maybe it's everything that we talked about today. It is actually. Iran, we wouldn't be talking nope, about. No. Nope. Um, Haswell, we nope. wouldn't be talking about. Nope. AT&T Cohen, we wouldn't. Net neutrality, we wouldn't. No. Nope. So we could be instead talking about how the government needs to really start passing affirmative privacy law to deal with things like facial recognition and, you know, how we need uh, maybe CFPB type agency to start dealing with automated decision making by major corporations and the use of artificial intelligence and, you know, algorithms and um, making choices for millions of people that they don't understand and can't interrogate. Um climate change. Like our cities are fucking sinking in the ocean. Right. And instead of talking about those types of important things, we're addressing all of this shit that like we really shouldn't need to be dealing with. So well, and we're trying to fight against that- like tearing parents away from their children at the border. Right. Like, right. And let's be clear, like Obama was terrible on immigration in a lot of ways. Right. And he set us up in crucial ways for the situation that we're in right now. And so by no means, And is this a plea to stop criticizing Democrats or stop pushing them to the left? Of course we should. It's really just for me, a recognition that I was wrong about, you know, a feeling confident that Hillary Clinton would win and having a belief in the American public (laughs) that they would not vote for someone like Donald Trump. And then B that things couldn't get substantially worse. Right. I mean, I thought I had this vision of Obama, the Imperial, you know, benevolent dictator, not benevolent, of course, but seen by many people in this country as benevolent as sort of like the, the height of how dystopian our politics could get. But I was extremely wrong about that. I mean, like Obama, I think the Obama era maybe gave people on the left this sense of like momentum in certain directions, right? That like, yes, the U S electorate had elected a black man for the first time in history. Wow. That actually is substantial progress considering that this country was born from slavery and genocide. Right. Um, but wow, how far we have like whiplash, you know, rejected that progress. And of course that's just like symbolic in some ways, but I think it's representative of what happened in a much larger sense. And it's just, it's, um, a lot to deal with. So anyway, I'm just saying people should vote. Yep. At the very least. Yep. And and get involved locally and, and do things beyond 
knocking on doors on election day. And I say that to myself, right? That is the only thing that I did. And I really, really wish, I really wish that I had done more. We've just heard clips today, starting with David Pakman laying out the case for the plan to undo some of the Republican gerrymandering in 12 targeted states. On Ring of Fire Radio, Sam Cedar spoke with Joan Walsh about the 7,383-seat strategy. This is Hell then discussed the toxicity and potential dangers of infighting amongst the left while the Real News Network then hosted a conversation about the fight within the Democratic Party between more progressive candidates and the corporatist party managers. Then we heard another interview from This Is Hell speaking with Elian Glazer about standing up for and organizing the left. And finally, we just heard humorless queers publicly rethinking their previous stance on voting for the lesser of two evils. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, this is Tyler calling from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, I'm calling to respond to Rob from Tacoma, the libertarian, who was concerned about the hidden cost of uh, labor. A worker co-op does not need to be structured very much differently from a traditional publicly owned business. The workers would go to work and earn the same wage approximately that they'd be earning now. The difference is that when dividends are paid out, the excess capital that the, that the company has earned, they would be then evenly distributed amongst the employees because, again, just like shareholders, the employees own the company. The big difference is that the employees actually do the work, whereas traditional shareholders just own money in the business, which they just get paid to, to do nothing effectively. The employees would still be responsible for electing a CEO, perhaps even hiring somebody from outside the company with competitive pay package, as well as executives and electing their own immediate supervisory staff. But the bottom line is that uh, the lowest workers would still earn in the company the lowest wages. There's no difference between that and a traditional company. The only difference comes at the back end when those dividends are paid out to the company owners, and in this particular case, those owners are the employees. Jay, thanks so much for Best of the Left. Uh, you do a great job. I appreciate everything, and I hope that that answers Rob's question about how worker co-ops really are not that big of a difference from what we currently have. They're just more equitable. All right. Thank you. Bye now. Hi, Jay. This is Laura in Alameda, California. I've been working on catching up on my Best of the Left episodes, and I had a few comments on various episodes. On the gun debate episode, I really liked the format that you did on that one, where you were um, taking different commentary and responding directly with counterpoints using material from various programs for that. Obviously, it's not a format that would, should be used for every episode, but I think it's one that can be used periodically as a great way to help us progressives get better at countering the other side. 
And it also might be a, a helpful way for researching issues versus kind of some of the more standard ways. I've read the book Donut Economics. I'm glad you had an episode that had several uh, mentions of that. The book is fantastic. I really encourage all your listeners to read it. And, you know, it has a lot of economic ideas that I've encountered other places. But what I like about Donut Economics is it really encapsulates things into a really simple package, but a package that really includes a lot of different elements that need to be accounted for. So fantastic book. We need Donut Economics. You did the encore of the conservative solution to climate change. And I was surprisingly, I was annoyed once again. I was annoyed the first time I listened to it. And uh, and it's a very unusual reaction for me to have to a best select episode. And the reason after thinking about it is I find this dividend concept for, you know, giving a dividend off of um, fossil fuels to be problematic because if we give a dividend, that's a positive that people are going to get money for resources, which should be to, you know, that are common resources versus allowing corporations to see all the gains from using those resources. But when it comes to something like fossil fuels, if we're trying to drive down the usage of fossil fuels, eventually as the usage decreases, the dividend will go down, which means people will get less money. And there's like an incentive to keep using fossil fuels to make the dividends bigger. So I just don't think it's a well thought out methodology to solve the problem. I, I think it's too short sighted and it doesn't really fairly get us incentivized to using the alternatives. So which would need we would need dividends for wind and and wind and solar and the other things that are better to break us from the bad stuff. I really liked Craig from Ohio's voicemail about straightening out some views from the left, uh, answering to uh, Sam. And on Sam's message, one of them, he talked about unity. We need unity and, you know, America needs to lead the way. And I just don't think we're going to get unity. You know, hey, I'm fine with working with people of, of all spectrums on issues that we have common ground on, but I don't think we have a lot of common ground on some real core issues. And if you read the book, uh, Don't Think of an Elephant by George Lakoff, he really explains that there's a very different moral perspective between the left and the right, which is largely based on conservatives believe in the strict father paradigm, whereas us progressives are more of a nurturant parent paradigm. And that actually informs our politics, not just how we view families. And when we look at the current Republican Party, they don't compromise. They don't even do their jobs. I mean, you know, not taking getting uh, Merrick Garland confirmed is a typical example of, of what Republicans have been doing, the dirty play that they've been doing. Uh, we have the Affordable Care Act, which was based on a conservative paradigm, tweaked a little bit, obviously, and we've had nothing but attacks by conservatives on something that should have been a centrist, acceptable solution for them. We are running out of time to address the environment and, the, sorry, the conservatives are completely wrong. We're wasting so much money with on our military. 
We're not talking about the long-term consequences that the planet is facing. Our economic paradigms are completely different for what we want. To me, it seems like the Democrats, you know, obviously they're, they're very centrist for most of us, but they're the best that we have. They're the ones trying to put out all the fires, and it's the fires that are being started by the Republicans. So I wish there was going to be unity, but I don't think that's what's going to happen. And I think as progressives, we don't want to waste too much time on futile efforts with working with conservatives if they're just going to turn around and uh, screw us over time and time again. So anyway, those are just a few of my thoughts. Thanks for all your good work, and thanks for the diversity of topics that you're covering. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991, just the way Laura did. We just heard from her giving a, a smattering of opinions on a variety of recent episodes. And the one thing I want to address is uh, is her concerns about cap and dividend. By far, the issue she brought up is the one that I heard the most from listeners in response to that episode the first time I posted it. And to be clear, I do think it's an issue that is worthy of some concern. But after putting a little bit more thought into it myself, I have uh, come to the conclusion that I am not as concerned as uh, people like Laura who have called or written into the show. So here's my basic take on it. Her concern, to recap, is that if we have a dividend that is paid out to everyone tied to fossil fuel production, that creates the perverse incentive to extract more fossil fuels because that increases the amount of the dividend. So the, the way this works, keeping in mind that it plays out over many, many years, is that the uh, the existence of this program makes fossil fuels more expensive. So everything that's made from fossil fuels will become more expensive. And at the same time as everything made from fossil fuels becomes more expensive, alternatives become uh, less expensive over time and less expensive by comparison. So as fossil fuels become more artificially expensive based on this program, it makes other more expensive alternatives more favorable. So over the course of several years, once we get to the point that Laura's concerned about when dividend payments actually start to go down, that's going to be happening at the same time as fossil fuels are so prohibitively expensive that it's economically unviable to use them because the alternatives will be such a better option. So people could lobby the government saying, please let fossil fuels be extracted more so I can get more of a dividend. And no one's going to do it anyway, because it won't make economic sense. It'll cost too much to produce and uh, distribute compared to what they can sell it for compared to alternatives. So, so that, that's one part of it. And the other is that this concern, I think, envisions a, f a future of the country full of citizen homo economicus, which is the tongue-in-cheek term referring to the way economists think of people, which is totally wrong. People who just do whatever's in their own selfish economic interest, regardless of 
anything else, really. And so the idea that people 20 years from now would be so ambivalent about fossil fuels that they would actually argue, no, 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 let's extract more of those. Like, people already don't like fossil fuels. You think 15, 20 years from now, when their dividend check starts to go down a bit, they're going to change their opinion about that. Like, climate change is only going to get worse. Opinions about fossil fuels is only going to get worse. Opinions about alternatives are only going to get better. It seems unlikely to me that it would be enough of an economic incentive to get people to change their opinion about that entirely and say, no, 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 let's extract more. And as I said, even if they did, I I don't know that that campaign uh, would be successful. And now here's the last point that sort of ties them together and ties this conversation back to the universal basic income slash guaranteed jobs conversation, that policies like this are not just about the black and white text of what's in the bill. It's not just about the math of how the dividends get paid out. It's also about culture and how it affects society. So yeah, sure, maybe people would become either dependent on or just very much in favor of a concept of a regular dividend being paid out, but that doesn't mean that they need for it to come from fossil fuels. It could just create a demand for an alternative universal basic income that doesn't derive its money from fossil fuels. It comes from some other source. So there's certainly the argument that when people are getting money for a while, they're not going to like it when they start getting less, but there are more ways to deal with that than to just increase fossil fuel production, especially 20 years from now when opinions of fossil fuels should be in the absolute garbage. So for all of those reasons, I have decided to not be terribly worried about what might happen 20 years from now if people base their opinions strictly on their economic benefit and are not influenced by any outside factors. And then the last point is we just don't have that many good policy proposals aside from that. Cap and trade has its own enormous slew of problems that make it not as good as a cap and dividend program. So until you got something better, I'm still in favor of the cap and dividend. As I promise, the moment I hear a better solution, I will jump ship and argue for something else or a combination of the two. So that's where I come down on it at the moment. I hope I'm right. But if I'm not, I hope that I'm not right for as short a period of time as possible and some other better idea comes along and we can latch onto that. So as always, keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. It's incredibly important, so please sign up. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.